Uh, I, I, uh, I'm going to condense just a little bit, just because of the time. I, I like to finish on time, but I'm not going to take out anything meaningful, which you're probably thinking, that means you padded it with unmeaningful stuff. <laughs> no, not really. Um, yeah. Um, but we're winding down. I just want to say, just before I begin, uh, many thanks to everybody who's been a part of this. Uh, this church and the, the Accelerate uh, students who have served so, so well. And uh, that has just been such a blessing to us. <clears throat> and it's a good model. When we talk about going and doing this in other places, in other countries and so on, this is a good model. People say, well, how do you do? What do you do? And here you go. And, uh, and that's just, just uh, really great. And uh, I'll try to finish with a little bit of time left. So if you have questions uh, about what I say here, probably not because it's pretty straightforward here. I thought I'd end up on a, on a little bit of a lighter note from a biblical perspective. But for uh, Caleb and Zoe and Darren and Alistair, if you have questions about actually doing the program or other things, um, then we'll be able to, to finish up there. So let, let's, let's start with a word of prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you so much. What a blessing. I mean, I was just listening uh, to Caleb and listening to Darren and thinking, where, where do you hear these things in ways that matter? Where can we put this into our heart and mind and help us understand? It's really nowhere unless we intentionally do it. And that's where the blessing comes, when we intentionally do things to grow. For us, Lord, um, we know that that intentionality is led by your spirit, and we pray for that. And you not only give us the desire to do it, but you give us the, the capacity, the strength, and the endurance to do it as well. And the benefits are amazing, not only to us, but to our families and to the world around us. You can use us in ways that you couldn't before. So thank you. Now bless our time in this last session, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Why worldviews matter. Um, there's a lot of Christians who think worldview is just you're getting away from the Bible. Uh, that's why pastors don't preach on worldviews. And nobody says you're supposed to preach on worldviews. You preach the word and worldviews come out. If you have eyes to see and ears to hear. People need to know what the biblical view is, but they also know, need to know what the narrative in the world is. One of the fascinating things that uh, came from Caleb's presentation is how the transcendental or the cosmic humanistic worldview and the atheistic naturalistic worldview are so similar. They both don't need a God outside. And if they both admit it, what they're saying is God's right here. And that leaves us standing alone. That leaves God who created, created all things. So let's talk about why worldview matters in general. I, I drove a Tesla in Albuquerque. Lynn was in the back seat. It was one of those expensive ones. I had a friend that had one. I said, do you want to drive it? I said, sure. This is what it looks like. I mean, that is a Tesla. It's got a big iPad there. And you drive it along, and it's just amazing. It's all electric, doesn't make any noise. In fact, they have actually added some road noise in it because it's, it's disturbing because it doesn't sound like anything. And then he said, okay, and I, I, 
take, let's go to, I forget where you said we were going to go. Touch the screen, and it's GPS. You take your hands off the wheel, and it will take you there. Took us up onto the interstate. <laughs> I mean, it took us up on the interstate. We're going to the interstate, changing lanes and everything. And it was the eeriest, strangest experience I've had in a long time. Lynn was fine. No, <laughs> no she wasn't fine either. Um, and I, I began to realize, boy, this is what's coming. Some of you are going to be in those cars. Some of you are going to own those cars if it keeps going. But the world is, it's, it's an example of how fast our world changes. Our world is rebooting itself so quickly. How do you keep up? Uh, over 30 million U.S. workers will lose their jobs because of artificial intelligence. Of course, artificial intelligence is usually what our Congress people have. Uh, but this is looking at the technical side of it, okay? Remember this? This is one of those Pixar films by Peter Doctor. And that's what humanity became, or at least earthlings became, where they just sit and watch, look at their screens, eat and drink all day and move around. Of course, the end of it, there's a redemptive end of it as well. If you haven't seen it, it's a, it's a, great, it's a great, great movie. So I want to talk about, though, when we look at our culture right now, just over the last few months, these are some key things that have happened in our country that keep us on edge. What do you do? How do you say what you're supposed to do? And how, how do you influence culture in these kinds of things? Because the narrative is against pretty much anything that's Christ-centered, as, we, as we've heard before. And then there's those who predict the future, like uh, Harari here. 21 lessons for the 21st century. I was ex excited because he's written some decent things in the past, um, interesting things. But this was one of the worst books I think I've read. And it was just basically a diatribe, an atheistic diatribe against culture, world, world culture. And uh, toward the end of the book, he says this. The neurons in our brain fire, which leads to our various decisions. The best bet as a human is to realize that you're just a collection of molecules and everything you think and do is only meaningful because you and other humans have ascribed meaning to it. So get over yourself. Get over yourself. You're just, uh, you're just a machine with neurons firing. And that's probably the best bit of the book right there. And that sets the course for all the lessons that he gives for culture itself. Uh, I'm going to give some of the best bits of what I've shared in here as well to, to get, get us thinking. Apathyism is an attitude of not caring about ultimate issues. To believe or not to believe in God is not important at all, as Dennis Derrida says. Ennui, of course, most of you know that. It's weary boredom about life. I see this in, in, in adolescents. They are young and still, or I should say, already weary about life. Yeah. A lack of curiosity. Yeah. And an enemy that's lack of moral standards in society. And the isolation and the anxiety that that creates. There's no standards. There's this emptiness. So what do you do? You're, you're on your screens the whole time, and that becomes your, your life. 
How do we speak into that? This was on the Telegraph, in the Telegraph, 10 years ago. They did a survey, the Prince's Trust did a survey of 15 to 26-year-olds and asked them about their feelings on life and so on. And the most interesting thing is, is this right here. One in 10 young people consider life meaningless. One in 10 young people believed life was not worth living or was meaningless, according to an, no, in quotes, an alarming report. Imagine kids at the, the very cusp of their lives, 10% of them. Nope. They did the uh, survey 10 years later, last year. And this time it says, nine in 10 young Britons believe their life lacks purpose, according to a shocking, no quotes this time, a shocking new study. Nine in 10. Is that not startling? Is that not sad? Is that not heartbreaking? Yes. That's why the idea of ignite hope is so important for us as believers. And everything we say and do through the Colson Fellows Program, through this church and everything, you, you see that. You listen to Darren and you, you're given hope and you think about the police and everything. And you got somebody like him saying these things and it's so well received. You say, it's right. That's right. That's how God made us. And then you listen to the whole idea, the history of, of atheism and how people are touting it as being the next big thing. And what's happening is people are calling themselves nuns. That doesn't mean necessarily that they don't believe. It's just they're not going to associate with anything that's already out there now, particularly churches or movements. Whatever it is, it's on themselves. So saying that, let me give you some perspective. <clears throat> Little Miley Cyrus, back in 2007, said that her faith is the main thing in her life. And she told USA Today that God wants her to be a light, a testimony in Hollywood. That's 2007. 2000, uh, this was last year. No, wait a minute. This is two years ago. And she says this, you are all stardust. You couldn't be here if stars hadn't exploded because the elements... Carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, and all the things that matter for evolution. How does she know these things? Uh, weren't created at the beginning of time. They were created in stars. So forget Jesus. Stars died so you could live. <laughs> Difference that Hollywood can make in a life. And I just wish that, that, that excitement and anticipation she had about life in 2007 what could have been done? Who could have mentored? Who could have spoken into her life for that to grow instead to die? Don't give up on her, though. I pray for her regularly. Triply. I don't know if you know, I don't know if you know if you like rap. Triply is very good. In fact, he and Lecrae do some things together. If you like Lecrae, you know, get on and listen to the things they do together. It's awesome. But when when he was young. He was talking about listening to an album, a song by Jay-Z. And uh, it was not a very clean uh, of it, but he said, I had the clean version. So my ears were shielded from the foul language, but not from all harm. There is no edited version that removes worldviews. They were lecturing me about what my aspirations should be and what is most important in the world. I was a star pupil. I ate it up. If I wanted the good life, he says, I needed the money, the cars, and the girls. 
So when we talk about the clean version, we'll take out all those F words, all those S words, and so on. But is, are those the worst parts of the song? Of course not. Because it's telling him, as I said, every song is telling us what's important in life and how to live, what to do, and so on. By the way, he's pastoring now, but he's also still uh, recording, which is good. Um, it's just cool, cool guy. So let me talk about serving Christ in this cultural moment. Why do we do it? Because Jesus told us to. Remember, all the artifacts of Jesus telling us to serve are things like a yoke, are things like a towel, are things like a cross. Those are the things that we use to serve. Go make disciples. You will be my witnesses. You are my ambassadors. And being an ambassador means this is not our home. We are representing somewhere else. We will go home. We'll be called home. So that's why we do it. Christians have come with three approaches to culture. One is to be offended by culture so that we withdraw. It's easy to be offended by culture, isn't it? It's so easy to be offended. And so you take away everything that you have invested in that and you get out of it. You plug up your ears. I don't want to hear that. I don't want to see that. And so on. We get as far away as we can, like the Benedictine monks. Let's get over to this abbey, to this monastery, away from the world. Come out from among them and be ye separate. It was in Isaiah, and so, and it's repeated in the New Testament, but that's a misinterpretation of what he's saying. A second approach by Christians is to be delighted by culture so that we assimilate, become just like it. Do we see denominations and churches and Christians doing that? Yeah, we do. We do. I looked for the church and I found it in the world. I looked for the world and I found it in the church. But the third approach is, I think, the biblical one. That's why it's third. To be distressed by culture so that we engage. I, I almost always stop people when they start calling non-believers idiots and uh, uh, I've heard some of our staff at the Colson Centers do that. Stupid, idiots and so on. And I say, how are you going to minister to these people? If you can't see them through the eyes of Christ and love them with the heart of Christ, you have no business even talking about it. That word distressed, I'll, I'll get into it just a little bit, but the word that's used most often is, is translated compassion. We talked about this before. There's a Greek word, sympatho, which means to have compassion. But there's another word, splunkna, which is also translated compassion, but it's a different word. To suffer with, which is what compassion means, sympatho, means to suffer with. Splunk now refers to your inner organs. And it refers to this intense pain that you have deep inside. 
And it occurs so many times in scriptures at poignant places. In uh, Matthew chapter 9, Jesus is looking over Jerusalem. And it says, he looked over the people of Jerusalem and he had compassion on them. That sounds also so sweet. You know, what happened is it, Jesus, it hurt him so bad. And he said, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he'll send workers. When I pray for somebody to come to Christ, I don't pray, Lord, please save them. As if God needs me to want him to save them. He wants them to save them more than I do. But he says, pray that God will send workers. So I'm praying God will send people into the life of our son, of, our, of people that I want to come to know Christ, of all these celebrities. Pray God send workers into their lives. Or something on TV. Or something that they read. Or, your, or how about a dream that terrifies? Well, or not necessarily terrifies. But you know, you know what I mean? Anything, Lord, please, please do that. It's used of the Good Samaritan. When he sees the man that's been burned, excuse me, that has been robbed, I'll share that with you. The passage says, and he had compassion on him. No, it hurt. The Levite, the priest, huh, walk around. The Samaritan, the dirty Samaritan, it hurt so bad he had to do something. Splunk not. That's what I pray for, is that splunk not in my heart. So when I see unbelievers, particularly those that irritate me to death, that I have that for them. Because that almost always motivates us. So what do we do? What do we do? <clears throat> I've already given you these passages. But again, I say, well, these are the best bits. Consider, continue steadfastly in prayer. Being watchful in it with thanksgiving. That's just a great prayer verse right there. Steadfast, watchful, thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word. I pray that for, for so many people or open up a door for the opportunity. You're there, you're talking to guys in the mailroom, praying that God will open up a door. To declare the mystery of Christ. Christ is a mystery. That is, in the Old Testament, there was no indication of that the Messiah would actually come and die. And so the mystery has been solved. And of course, he's in prison now. It's on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear. I want to make sure that when I speak, when I'm like Darren, I have this opportunity, I want to make sure I'm making it clear, which is how I ought to speak. God, open a door for me to speak. In Ephesians, which Paul wrote about the same times he wrote, the same time he wrote Colossians, he says, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me, that words may be given to me, and opening my mouth boldly pro proclaim the mystery of the gospel. For many people that you meet, it is a mystery. They don't get it. They don't understand it. Yeah. It's karma to them. For which I'm an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak, confidently. So that's what we do. So how do we do it? Just mentioned these passages earlier. 
By the way, this is supposed to be Colossians 4, not Colossians 3. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, always gracious. Season with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. We talked about this, but there, just to reiterate that. <clears throat> and then, of course, this lovely passage in 2 Timothy. I just, I just, every time I read 2 Timothy, in fact, I had memorized this once and, and did the whole thing in chapel once at the university. Um, it's just, as you realize, this is Paul's last letter before he dies. The executioner's axe was probably days away. And these are the things he said. Don't be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, everyone, able to teach patiently, enduring evil. And you correct, when you correct, do so with gentleness. So that's the how. And you know all these things. We talked about these things, but we cannot reiterate it enough because we get wrapped up in the narrative of the world. We want to win arguments. We want to put people down. We want to whatever. So what do we do in serving Christ in this cultural moment? Let's go to the Roman Empire. Serving Christ in, in that cultural moment. There are photographs from the Roman Empire there. Taken with an iPhone. <laughs> Maybe that's just a one phone. Maybe that's Roman numeral one. I don't know. Okay. All right. Serving Christ in this cultural moment. Paul in Athens. Lynn and I are going to Athens in a couple months. We've been there before. It's an amazing, amazing place. We're going to do the cities of Paul, lead, leading a group. It's amazing. And Athens has always been a place that just captivates me. In fact, we, we were in Athens for four days, I think, three or four days before we left. And I was speaking at the Greek Bible Institute as well as going on this trip. And we always went back to the Acropolis. With the Parthenon on the top there, okay? There's just something about that. God bless you. You've been with this guy here. You got his cold, okay? Now, what's interesting, let me just, before you read that, Paul had been on this second missionary journey, and he'd been up there in Thessalonica, and the Jews ran him out, went to Berea. The Jews ran him out of there, putting his life on the line. So he left uh, Silas and Timothy in Berea and he went down to Athens waiting for them. And so that's the story there. So Paul's there by himself in Athens. He's probably been here before because he's probably the top educated Jew of his time. Okay? He was number one. He was educated by Gamaliel, whom God, by the way, transformed both of those people, which, which is awesome. So, so here, here, this is Athens. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, at Silas and Timothy, his spirit was provoked within him. Now, here's another word for distress. It's the word paroxysm. And you think Splankna meant distress. This is like everything has just churned up. He was so overwhelmed. It's, it's, in one sense, it's, it's, it's provoked to be disgusted and overwhelmed. And it was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. That word full literally means swamped with idols. Uh, 
we, uh, up in the Parthenon, the Acropolis, it was covered with, with um, altars and statues and places of worship. And then you look down at the marketplace, which is huge, and it too was jammed with idols, thousands of them. Every different thing to worship, anything to worship. So what did he do? He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and then in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. He began to talk to whoever would listen to him about Christ. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. These are the two major schools in Athens at this time. Okay, this is in the 60s. The Epicureans were very much about pleasure, good pleasure and everything. There's no God. The Stoics were very transcendental. There's this, this moving force in everything, and your life is intended to get into and under that force, that sense of whatever it is. You let fate happen to you. That's why when you talk about somebody being stoic, they just say, well, you know, fall down the stairs and jump up. Well, I'm glad that's over, you know, because. And some said, what does this babbler say? Literally, it's seed picker. What does this seed picker wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Interestingly, in the book of Acts, they almost always were preaching the resurrection the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. Areopagus is the Greek word for Mars Hill. Eros, the god of war, Mars. Pagas, hill. And we live in Mars Hill, North Carolina, because that's how it's translated, I think, into... Um, English in the, new, in the King James. So they took him to the Areopagus, and this is where all the elite of Athens would meet. It's still there. I'll show you a picture. Still there. It's all where they would sit is all kind of smooth from their, their Greek bums sitting there, you know, and, and they would get together and they would do all kinds of things. But they would bring people to listen to as well. And sometimes if they didn't like what they were teaching, they'd kick him out of the city. May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Okay? So there is the Areopagus. There is, um, not this. See, there is the Acropolis. Okay? And that's the Parthenon. And down the hill, right there, that is the Areopagus. I'll show you another picture of it. All of this was the marketplace. It's huge. In fact, it's still there. Now, from the Parthenon, looking down, that's the, right there. That is the Areopagus. And that's where they would meet. People would see them. It's cool. We went there last time we were there, and I read this Acts 17 passage, because this is exactly where Paul was when he did it. It's just, it's awesome. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. That sounds like us, doesn't it, brother? So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, which is also the name of the people that gathered, all the elite, he said this, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. 
For as I passed along and observed the objects of worship, your worship, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now, just to go back a little bit, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. You've got to realize many of these uh, statues, many of these altars were just vile. Many of them pornographic. I mean, just overwhelmingly immoral. The things that they would worship. And talk about putting the best face on it. You guys are very religious. My goodness, you're religious. Because I looked around at your objects of worship. Now imagine him doing that. All the vileness and immorality. Why did he do that? Because he wanted to connect with them. He wanted to know where their hearts were. He wanted to know what they thought. And then as he was doing that, he passed by that altar to the unknown God. And of course, many people think it was there just in case they missed one. Out of all the thousands they had there, if we missed one, this is it. And so he's basically saying, you missed one. You missed the one. And I'm going to tell you about him. So uh, you know the story. I'll, I'll kind of summarize in a second here. But notice, Paul's mission was to represent Christ in serving others. That should be our mission as well. He's a good example. His heart, he was distressed by their idolatry and their unfamiliarity with God. In response, I'm going to talk to as many people as I can, telling them about Christ if they want to hear. Paul has said earlier in... Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, for though I am free from everybody, I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more. And as we said before, what he's doing is when he meets somebody at the store, when he meets somebody at the school, when he meets them wherever, you look at them and you, you kind of have a desire to serve them. You want to build a bridge to them excuse me, to, to, uh, from Jesus Christ to them. And you may not know what that is right now, but that's your goal. You want to build a bridge to Jesus for them. That's why you ask questions. Okay, that's why I asked uh, Darren that question, but how do you do, you know, in your interviews? And because the, what he was talking about is just being wide open, letting them talk, letting them describe that way you can kind of understand them a little bit. Not necessarily that you're trying to convict them of a crime or anything, but that, but that you want to understand, you listen to them. Paul is always talking about apologetics is in response to something people have said. A question they have asked. Always be ready to give an answer for the hope that's within you, Peter says, right? For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. So think about that as you walk around. Think about that as you meet people. And instead of wondering what they are, whether they're going to like you or dislike you or whatever, just consider yourself a servant. Just put yourself in that place. Ask God to open up a door so that you can build a bridge. And maybe you can. Maybe you won't. Maybe it's not their time. But always ask. Paul engaged everyone in the synagogue, in the marketplace, the philosophers, the Athens city leaders. And here's how he did it. He started where they were. Okay? You are very religious. You are very religious. 
Secondly, he was very positive. Hey, you guys are religious. That's awesome. Thirdly, he examined their culture. We have uh, in the Colson Fellows every week, every Friday, or I guess Saturday for, for you guys, you get the culture translator. And it is what has happened in popular culture this past week. Um, and it's usually, there's about 12 things that, that you get. And it's fascinating because it tells you what's happened. It gives you a worldview perspective. It gives all the links so that you can understand. If you're a teacher or you're a parent or you're a grandparent, you should know. You should know. They're doing the heavy lifting for you. So that you can know. I've had more opportunities to um, talk with uh, particularly young people by knowing the, the music they're listening to. To talk about Kanye or to talk about Taylor Swift or to talk about, you know, you name it. I'll mention another one here in just a second. But he examined their culture with an eye to, to, to having that bridge in their life with an anchor from Christ to them. Okay. So we look at our culture. What we worship, all you have to do is just go and look at a magazine rack. Covers, that's what we worship. Every time I go to an airport, I think about that. As I walk by, I look. There are our objects of worship. But knowing about Instagram and YouTube and Facebook and WhatsApp and Insta, Insta, what's, that's not Instagram, that's Snapchat. I carefully study your object of worship. And it's always changing. That's why Culture Translator helps you, you know. He quoted their sources. And in the message that Paul gives them, he quotes, not from the Bible. You go back a few chapters when he's talking to the, the, uh, the Jews and the Gentiles who are God-fearers. He quotes from the Bible. Here he doesn't. He quotes from Epimenides and Eratus, an Epicurean and a Stoic poet. They would understand that. And he's taking the words that they've heard for much of their lives and applying it to God. In him we live and move and have our being. We are his offspring. And they're going, whoa, is that what that means? It's like finding out what Taylor Swift really meant or who she really hates. Because haters will hate, you know. So they're going to hate. That's terrible. <laughs> and then he does admit he told them about God's plan through Christ. Billie Eilish, fascinating person. How many of you have heard of her? Isn't it interesting? Two months ago, I asked that question. There was one hand. It's because her brother Phineas, now she just turned 18. Her brother Phineas and her recorded some songs for a dance group that they were going to do. They put it on SoundCloud. It had a billion downloads. A billion. People began to notice with a billion. It was recorded in his bedroom. So they did a few more, you know, to make some money online, you know, do that. Well, it just kind of blew up. And now she is one, she won more Grammys this year than any person has ever. She just recorded the new James Bond song. All this has happened just within the last like six months. Fast. Uh, she and her brother recorded the James Bond on a bus. 
You know, they, they got the, hey, this is good. Let's record it. They, they recorded it on a bus. You think about it. It's crazy. But if you know anything about her, uh, she, she comes across as very dour, very dark. That's her, that's her real spider, by the way. She has a spider that's a pet. You know, watch James Corden's uh, carpool karaoke with her. It's crazy. They, they, they go to her house, actually. But, you know, she's actually um, a normal kid. She has Tourette's syndrome, by the way. She has Tourette's and so on. And does not know the Lord yet. Yet. The reason I bring her up is, uh, you know, people like her because she's different. Kids like her because she's different. One kid says her music doesn't sound like anything else out there, and she isn't afraid to break the rules. Hmm, don't notice. There's a value. If you break the rules, I like you. I like her music because it's different, not unusual or boring. She allows me to express the darker side of my personality without fear of judgment. Because she is very, very dark in a lot of her songs. Um, Well, Axis, when it came out that they had a billion views, before anybody ever heard of her, they had a parent's guide to Billie Eilish. I think it's 13 pages long. I think now it's 99 cents. You can get it. Maybe it's still a dollar, I don't know. But to, to give her background and everything about her and then her songs, what her songs say and so on. And the idea is then they talk about the worldview of the songs and how you can use what she says to have a conversation with your children. Access is all focused on how you as a, as a parent, grandparent, teacher, youth worker can have a conversation with your kids, because that's the most important. In fact, they will, they judge themselves on how many conversations they start. Last year, they started a million conversations with kids, their parents and others. They say this, overall, Eilish's music exposes the darkness many teens relate to, yet feel like older generations often pretend don't exist. Obviously, they feel the need for more transparency, honesty, and authenticity, even if it means showing their ugly, sinful side. Her music becomes an opportunity to teach teens the difference between exposing darkness and exalting it. The reason I bring this up is when we think worldviewishly, we just think, I know the three worldviews and so on. This is what we're talking about is this kind of thing. Billie Eilish has so many people that absolutely love her are going to be influenced by her. So we pray for her. We pray for her. She's struggling right now to be, because she's so famous and she's not that kind of person. She still lives with her mom and dad and brother in a little house. Serving Christ. So what do we do? We start where they are. We are positive. We examine the culture. That's, again, that's what we do, the Colson Fellows. We know their sources, or we know where to go find their sources. And we tell them about God's plan through Christ. On a more positive note, as it was, was a negative, on a positive note, this person, as everybody knows this guy, right? He was named this Generation Z's hero. Okay, Chris Pratt. And he received by an, an MTV award for that. And he got up and gave nine rules for life. Okay? I don't have room for all of them, but he said these things. Now, this is on MTV. All right? I forget how many millions of people were watching this. He said, you have a soul. Be careful with it. 
God is real. God loves you. God wants the best for you. Believe that. I do. Okay? See, Darren couldn't even say that at the police department, probably. <laughs> but here he is on MTV saying it to millions of Generation Z. Learn to pray. It's easy. And it's so good for your soul. And then this last one, number nine. Nobody is perfect. People will tell you that you are perfect just the way you are. You are not. <laughs> Speaking some truth, right? You are imperfect. You always will be. But there is a powerful force that designed you that way. And if you are willing to accept it, you will have grace. And grace is a gift, like the freedom that we enjoy in this country. That grace was paid for with somebody else's blood. Do not forget that. Don't take that for granted. Okay, now he finished that. There were, I think, about 600 people in that studio standing ovation from them. Does that give you hope? Are people ready? Yeah, they really are. And I think that when we think about this cultural moment, it's easy to get down, it's easy to get overwhelmed, but it comes back to the basics. Letting God love the world through us. Um, to speak words, to be wise, to recognize that sometimes when we share Christ, it's a mystery to them and they need some light in that darkness. And these are the things that I think are important for us. So serving Christ in this cultural moment, it's exciting. God is doing something in our country and here too. And we are thrilled by that. Well, I'm going to stop there. We've got uh, about six minutes to end. Um, do you have a question or a comment about anything over the last couple of days, about anything that I just said, or anything that anybody else has said? If you, wanna, if you didn't get a chance to ask Darren a question, or Caleb, or, or Zoe, um, Um, so I was thinking based on some of the stuff that we talked about earlier today, specifically about um, something I've noticed working with youth is the rise of um, importance that they place on influences, uh, YouTube personalities, unconventional sources of authority right. that are now currently wielding a tremendous um, cultural um, power. And whether you think that that is um, like something that we need to provide an alternative to, a fad that will eventually pass with time, or is it actually an opportunity that Christians can get it on and actually be a part of that um, growing dynamic? That, that's such a great question, and you may not even know what he's talking about, but there are some people whose actual title is influencer. <laughs> influencer. And a lot of times, depending upon what platform, they're on, a YouTube influencer, and a lot of them make a lot of money being an influencer. And they take their uh, influence seriously. But a lot of times the, the influence that they're providing is really silly. It's like wardrobe and makeup. And the girls do the same thing. I'm just kidding. And, um, but the idea in all of that is that to be an influencer is something to, be, to aspire to. You know, I want to influence other people. For what? And I'm, I saw an interview with a bunch, I don't know if you've ever watched an interview with them, and they said, I really want to be an influencer. What do you want to influence people to do? It's like, um, I, I don't know, you know. But just the thought of being an influencer. And the reason this happened, by the way, what's your name? Sam. Samuel? Yeah. Okay, Sam. Samuel or Sam? Sam. 
Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'll call you Steve. That way you got it. Okay. No. Sorry. Um, but but, but Sam, what Sam's getting at is he's working with young people. A lot of these influencers, you have no idea who they are. And so they may love this influencer that only has a thousand people listening because this person over here has 2.41 million, 2.4 million, you know. And so it's, it's, so, it's, it's an example of what social media has done in taking the, the, we used to have one channel or two channels or something and the, the big hit stations on the radio and all that. And now it's disseminated out. And I remember I used to ask kids, what's your favorite song, your favorite group? And, they, you know, everybody would know, oh, yes, yeah, this group, this group. Now, I'll find out and about 90% of what they tell me I've never heard of them before because there's some indie band that they came across, you know, and so on. And uh, they're probably really good. But, you know, it's just like, it's just dissemination. And the content is less important than the fact that that's happening. And sometimes the more obscure your influencer is, the cooler you appear. You know, and so all of that is going on at this time. And Sam, I think to answer your question, I think the last one is important. I think it's important not just to say influencers are bad because you can't get away from that. Most of them are YouTubers anyway. You know, get them. But if we could get more influencers that are Christian in some positive ways, or not necessarily blatantly Christian, but are very positive and wholesome and so on. And there are a growing number of those. Our son keeps us up on all of those, by the way. And, um, and praying that God will do that and maybe become an influencer yourself, or at least have a, a YouTube channel yourself. Um, yeah, I, I, I think that if you start talking down something like that, then the, the young people will suspect you or something, you know, what, what's wrong with you? Why are you doing that? And, uh, and I would instead take the opportunity to point out really good influencers that are positive and, and so on and, and quote them and everything. And people go, oh, that's cool. And then because of you, who you are, they might gravitate toward those, those kinds of things. And, um, and even telling why you think it's important, why they're good and those kind of things. So, yeah, that's a, that's a good question there. Yes. Dr. Bill, um, Mark spoke yesterday, we introduced the concept of extremist versus moderation. Mm -hmm. um, and I may have taken it a bit out of context, but it seems that in our current culture, everything's either, well, everything's just extreme. So whether you've got an opinion on climate change or on abortion or whatever, whatever your view, or Christianity, whatever your viewpoint might be, there's, everything's extreme. You're either extremely for or extremely against. There doesn't right. seem to be any grounds for... Yeah. rational conversation in, in the middle. Right. Um, just wondering if you've got any tips for how um, we might be able to diffuse extreme conversations and just introduce that, that concept of a rational yeah. viewpoint. Well, that's a good question. We, we tried to talk about this a little bit at lunchtime, didn't have enough time, so I appreciate you bringing it back up again. Um, it, we live in such a binary culture where you're either for or against. You can't be moderately one or the other, or you can't be in the middle because that just means you're wishy-washy, you don't know what's going on, and so on. And of course, let's face it, you get, you're, you're overwhelmed with, if you are a liberal, then you have to have these views. If you are a conservative, you have to have the, this position on, on climate change, or LGBTQ, or whatever, you know. And um, so you, you've got to be there. In fact, what bothers me, you've got those gotcha questions. You know, they'll sit down with an, uh, an athlete or something and say, now, what is your view on gay marriage? And all they're doing is it's a gotcha question. The minute he or she answers, they gotcha. You're over here. You know? And I 
I haven't been in, a, in that situation a, a couple of times where they asked me that question about a fund. I said, I'm not answering that question. I know what you're trying to do. And I kind of say, you're trying to do gotcha because you want to do I said, no, 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 we're really interested in what you believe. No, you aren't. <laughs> you really aren't. What does it matter what I believe? Let's talk about things that I'm concerned about, you know, the, why I'm here and so on. Because if I, whatever I say, half the people listening are going to tune out, you know. And um, so, so in that context, you're probably wondering what we should do. Did you ask that? Okay. What we should do in that, number one, I think we need some good models of people who can say, we need to think about this a little bit more. But you look, you look at the impeachment of Donald Trump. It was all, I mean, it was all partisan. Only, only one fellow, uh, Republican, probably trying to get elected president himself, you know, voted. And, and it was just so, we in America, we were just, I mean, it just came and went. And it was impeachment. It was huge. And it's like the last impeachment hearing, hardly anybody was watching it anymore. It, they just didn't care because they knew the Democrats against them. Yeah, of course. And, um, but, you're, but everybody voted their party. And they don't want to get their party upset with them and so on. Nobody thinks for themselves anymore, and that's a shame. Uh, I read a Stanford professor the other day mentioned that the, he said, the only kids in my classes that think broadly and deeply anymore are these Christians. And he wasn't pleased with that. He just that's true, these Christians. You know? And I thought that was a nice thing to read. You know? So we need to encourage uh, people in the public square. And I don't know how to do it other than we can model it ourselves. We need to model it from the pulpit as well. That's why I go back to, I'm kind of overboard on being kind and gracious as Christians. Because there's something about that when you, when you see that. And uh, uh, everybody knows Ellen DeGeneres, I'm assuming, you know. And she often has Lauren Daigle on. And you know, Lauren Daigle is this wonderful Christian singer. And she sounds like Adele. She sounds better than Adele sometimes. And it's just amazing. And, why, and she lets her come on and sing these gospel songs, these Christ-centered songs. And I'm wondering what's happened to Ellen. Well, I do know what's happened because I've been praying for her for years, so that's what's happening. But, um, but they ask her a question, what is your view on gay marriage? And she wasn't prepared for it, and she said, we should love everybody and so on. Well, Christians just blasted her, you know. And, of course, Lynn and I are going, great, great. And uh, I don't think it was Ellen that asked her the question. I think it was, it was somebody else, you know. So, so um, I'm, I'm, I'm on your side trying to figure out what to do. And the, I'm just praying that God would allow there to be some. If we had a, a person in office, for example, that could model that, I think that would go a long way. In the United States, we have somebody that, that doesn't do that. And um, I mean, that's what it is, you know, and so on. But um, we need we need role models, and I'm, that's what I'm praying for, actually. Role models in the public square, in the, the media, in uh, entertainment, that will say, you know, you, we disagree on this. That's okay. I'd love to see two celebrities who disagree on LGBTQ, but they're best friends. Yeah, we disagree, but it's okay. Oh yeah, Ellen, Ellen and George Bush. Do you remember that thing? She went to the uh, Dallas Cowboys game. Was with George Bush and his wife. And family, and uh, she was just skewered. Don't you realize he's conservative? Don't you realize he's Republican? You know, and so on. And she just said, "Hey, we're friends. We're friends." And I thought, 
Yeah, yeah. I've always, Ellen has always intrigued me with her. I like her. But anyway, that was a good moment. And if that could happen more and more and more, I think people would be. Uh, one of my favorite scenes in um, Anna Karenina um, is when Vronsky is, listens, goes to this political debate in this big bar, and they're all listening and everything. And as he's leaving, he's a soldier, you know. And as he's leaving, they say, What is your position? He says, I'm going to be fascinated to find out what my position will be. Because he says, I need to think about it. You know, I need to talk more about it, you know. And that was great. People thought that was, oh, wow. That, that's a sharp person, you know. That's good. What else? Yes, sir. <coughs> I don't know if you're familiar with the American Gospel documentary, all about the prosperity gospel and how much it's infiltrated Western church, America, and here. I guess I'd just love your comments on uh, what we can do in Western church to reduce the impact or remove that emphasis it seems to be quite pervasive uh, prosperity gospel the bless me gospel the easy believism right that sort of right. stuff yeah um osteen and those yeah. individuals yeah where god wants you healthy wealthy and wise and you come to him you you all your bills will be paid off and so on well let, let me say this about about that um joel osteen of course his father was a was a preacher it wasn't quite quite there yet um I have met more than a few people who have come to Christ through Joel Osteen. Now, the reason I say that is because his positive spirit and what he said drew them in. They came to Christ. They hung around a little while and then realized, hmm, there's something here. And then they left. They were no longer following Joel Osteen, but they, it was his positive message that drew them in. And there's a lot of people that need that, who've been beaten up by the church or bruised or whatever. And so I'm not as hard on him completely at times because I think he can be used by God, not necessarily as a servant, maybe as a tool, but nevertheless used by God, you know, um, in, in that way. Um, there's some things about that. I, I think that uh, some preachers on TV just scare you to death. You're like, you know, I'm not sure I want it because it's terrifying. Um, but what does bother me is the whole idea that it, but that, that's karma. That's not grace. You're, you know, you come to Christ, he's going to you, give you all these things. And, um, and that's, that's dangerous, very, very dangerous. And we need to speak out on it and so on and, and read the Babylon Bee regularly, you know, about Joel Osteen. He's on there just two or three times a week, actually. Um, uh, yeah, so, but, but it, because people are, are allowed to say what they want to say, they're going to they're gonna do that. And people are going to gravitate, so we pray for them. But, you know, there have been some prosperity preachers like, um, what's her name? The lady, the older lady, I can't remember, um, who have really, Joyce Myers, thank you, Joyce Myers, who, who came out, this was about three or four months ago, I think, said, I've been wrong. I've been wrong. Yeah, a lot of them are saying, whoa. And so that's what you pray for, too. And because those people that followed them, they're going to hear them, they're going to say, whoa, okay. And if they came for the wrong reason, they'll leave. If not, then Christ will get them. Yeah, they had problems with false preachers back in Paul's day as well. So we will too, you know. We got one more question up at the back. Okay, one more, yeah. Um, just following on from the last couple of questions, a huge uh, 
I guess, challenge and tension for me personally is that different worldviews within the Christian worldview does, um, such as the, you know, emerging church, and we talked a little bit about feminist um, mm-hmm. culture. Right. Does the Colson's Fellowship Fellows address uh-huh. that or go into any detail no, that's a good question. Um, within the context of evangelical Christianity, you do have uh, some of the things. That you, the, some of the emerging church is good. A lot of it's not, you know, because it's more postmodern than it actually is biblical. Uh, some of the feminists, um, I wouldn't necessarily call them feminists, but the, 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 the female perspective among evangelicals in the United States they don't like it just if a woman's in charge at all. I, I think biblically, I, I don't get it. I think biblically women can have the, the, the roles that God has given them in the church itself. Um, but uh, in Southern Baptist Convention, for example, is struggling with that and so on. And that, I think they're wasting time. But um, as far as Colson Fellows are concerned, we don't do that. Or Colson Center. We want to be mainstream. We want to be mere Christianity. Okay, what is the essence of Christianity? That's why if you come to our residencies, we do worship, but we have uh, Josh Bales usually lead worship. And what we sing are old, old songs from way back. We do creeds from way back. We do morning and evening prayers from way back. Those prayers that have been part of the church, you know, oh, and that's the things that unite us. And we'll sing some, some more modern things as well, but that's what we do, because we realize that if we if we had take take a position on some of these things, then you alienate people and you divide when we want to. In fact, uh, John came to me and says, "People are asking, what is our position on women in ministry? Should women be pastors?" And uh, I said, "John, we don't need to have a position on that. We're not a church." And he said, good point. 